0: Hey, this is Justin. We Eat Our Producer. In case you missed our promotional firestorm, let me remind you that our intrepid host, Zach Smith, had a solo exhibition at Frederickson Frieser Gallery in New York this last month. It's closing up this week, and we figure a few of you probably saw it, and some of you didn't. Either way, this week we decided to post an interview we did with Zach a little ways back that we hope will give you a lot of insight into his work, his motivations. We just wanted to keep the Zach Smith celebration party going a little longer. We brought perennial favorite and good friend Sean McCarthy on him and John grill Zach for a good two hours. It's brutal and extremely informative and a ton of fun. Please enjoy.
1: I was concerned about the greater potential for Zach to embarrass me. Like, oh, you no. embarrass you. For
2: sure. <laughs> and it'll be fun. We're, we're doing what we always do, but
3: pointing our focus on you, Mr. Smith. Okay, so we're interviewing me. Yeah. Are you also interviewing me, John? Yeah, man. Then you should move your head in the box so I can see you. Hey, everybody, this is John Mejias in New York, the East Coast. And this is Zach Smith in uh, Los Angeles, the West Coast.
2: And this is We Eat Art, a podcast where we talk to a real live visual artist
3: about... It was an interesting challenge to try to like, make something that was so crazy as a painting that it didn't even matter. Like you wouldn't even look twice at one of those. Getting into what looks real or unreal. It did lead to some really interesting things for me in painting. Like a lot of people think my paintings are collages still. I think maybe the last review I had, I don't know how many years in, was like somebody who was like, it's a collage. I'm like, to read the label, You douchebag.
2: We're turning our focus today on Zach Smith.
3: So like saying like, I want people to understand that like this girl, she's this kind of girl. Like Bailey J has a cock or April Flores is really fat. They're both beautiful though. Maybe just putting that person in front of people is a a noble thing. After that, you're spending a month doing a painting when you could have just given them a photograph. You're like, oh, I'm humanizing people. But in the end, I don't think art succeeds when it just appeals to people's goodness. Like food, art has to appeal to your desire. Yes, it tastes good. You know, it has to appeal to the, the needing, wanting part of you. And that's the good stuff. I can't just be like, oh, you're going to feel empathy. Well, if you do, good. But the main thing is, is I want you to feel something strongly because you're in the presence of the sublime with luck.
2: You always say this Now I'm going to say it. You were born.
3: <laughs> it's true. I don't remember Where it. Where were you born, sir? I was born in Syracuse, New York, to a pair of people who would move rapidly from there to Washington, D.C. I lived four blocks, well, maybe ten blocks from my cousin, who was also named Zach Smith, across from... Really? Yeah. Um, well, now, were they Zach Zen Smith? No, they were not. They were Zach David <laughs> Smith. Okay. And he's a lawyer, and I'm me.
1: I wanted to point out to the listeners who may not have known that Zach's middle name is, in fact, Zen, and that would suggest a kind of hippie influence in your family. And I know that you've talked to me about having gone briefly at least to some kind of hippie school as a child where everything was made of wood. Oh yeah. And I wanted to talk a little bit about what I've understood to be your aversion to hippie aesthetics and how that's informed your own approach to your aesthetic. Yeah,
3: that could be just like the horrible master key to everything. (laughs) We were a very bad neighborhood at the time. is not a good place to be. Lived across the street from this elementary school. I think it was elementary. big school on the edge of DC. My cousins had, I think, tried to send their kids there, my aunt and uncle. The other, Zach Smith, and I think one of the two of them might have like went there like a year. Basically, the principal and stuff didn't want us there. My mom went to visit and the principal just said like straight up, she's like, there are no white students here. Your child will be beat up you know but you know my parents are already hippies so they were like well we can send them to the hippie school because we're a two income family and this will be fine so I went to what is called a Waldorf school which is based on the teachings of Rudolf Steiner who's some German hippie Mm -hmm. German pre-hippie whatever but the idea is everything was made of wood and you can't wear t-shirts with pictures on them and basically just like what would you do to make modern life unbearable Let's do that to children. (laughs) So, of course, I'd never been to a regular school. So I experienced it only as restriction. So I was at home and I had a t-shirt with a pink panther on it. And I had, I don't know, a fucking Star Wars guy, hammerhead or whatever. And then you'd go there and they go, now hammerhead, you cannot bring to school, but here's a block of wood. (laughs) And here's like a little dancer made of a pine cone. Isn't that delightful? and you've got to change your shirt. So for me, it was like, this school is a a bad idea already. And then on top of that, there's this, and I didn't like it. And there was a lot of like folk dancing and a lot of clapping and circles. (laughs) I mean, just like the whole nine yards. I would be like, mom, dad, this is bad. And they would be like, well, you know, it's spiritual. And I'd be like, oh, spiritual must mean bad things. (laughs) Then my parents got divorced shortly after that. So then it was like, okay, well now it's hard to send you there, but I think I got a, a year or two more of that kind of school. I mean, kids already hate school. so This is like school plus wood was like horrible. And then <laughs> that part of DC, which Borders on Maryland, is called like Tree City, USA, because there's literally a lot of trees, I guess. So I started <laughs> to be like, I hated trees. I was like, trees are boring. There's like Fort Stevens and there's graffiti and trains and those things are fun. And then there's trees, which are just in the way. In general, there was a really simple equation in my head, which is the middle of the city, which is like a short metro ride away, was cool and fun and geometric and weird. And then the country, which was a metro wide away in the other direction, was like a bunch of trees and pine cones, it was stupid. Extrapolate from there and there are no surprises after that, so we can stop the interview.
2: We gotta talk about the art, though. How did you start discovering, like, I am such an artist?
3: Maybe this is the fucking Waldorf school, but people ask me, when did you start making art? And I'm like, when did you stop? Because, you know, kids make art, right? They're here crayons and whatever. Better question is, when did I stop doing sports, right? Because as a child, they're always like, here, hold the bat, here, here's some crayons, and they do both, right? And then at a certain point, you stop doing one, and then that's your life, right? I was making pictures and stuff and they would go, oh, these are great, I'm putting it on the fridge. But I think the first time I went nuts with it, I realized this the other day in the car, maybe re-realized it. So my dad moved out to LA, my mom was still in DC. My dad moved out to LA and he wasn't gonna be a hippie writer writing about dragons anymore, he was gonna be <laughs> a TV writer. He went to work for a TV company TV company, it sounds like they make like Sanyo, no, like a network, Embassy Television, which did a bunch of sitcoms and movies of the week. They did Facts of Life and different strokes and stuff. But Stan Lee had come in to pitch a bunch of shows. Marvel was talking to the network about possible Marvel sh- shows. Of course, His assistant or whoever worked for him had been like, do your kids need comics? Comics are great. And they just gave everybody who had kids like this massive stack of comics. And it was all the Marvel comics for that month. Then my dad brought it home. He was like, oh, Stan Lee gave you a bunch of comics. And I was like, whoa. And this was like so many comics. It was really hard to explain to anyone how many comics this was for a child. Like this would be like the amount of comics you would accumulate over like, five or six years of just going to the store and begging your parents for comics. And at the time, you pick up a story and it's like issue 247. (laughs) So you're trying to figure out like, what was Spider-Man doing before this comic that he ended up fighting Magma Blaster? And what's going to happen after? Because on the last page, it looks like Magma Blaster pretty much has him, you know? So I was trying to stitch together basically the entire, now everybody knows, very complicated Marvel Universe from like one month of Marvel Comics of different, People, So it'd be like, oh, this is what Black Panther is doing. This is what Spider-Man is doing, whatever. And then my dad brought in some, I guess there was a DC person and he brought home some DC comics. I don't know why these people were dealing with the facts of life people, but that's what kept happening. So for a couple months, I just had all these comics and I was like, well, I'm gonna draw some comics. And so I sat down and started drawing much harder than I had before, because I had all this. So I was like, I can do this. This is easy. But these guys have messed up. Like this costume shouldn't be orange, should be purple. <laughs> Civil.
2: Were you already making those comics or making up your own?
3: I was making up my own, but I would say they were somewhat derivative at that (laughs) age. Sure. I mean, I don't know what the critical consensus would be now, but at the time, I felt like my work was not really that original, but there was a lot of it. Yeah, I spent one whole summer just drawing. Also, I didn't know anyone in LA, so that helped. So I spent my whole summer just drawing these comics and then I think the Henry Darger-esque level of effort I was putting in definitely made an impact on my dad and stepmom and other people who came to the house. They were like, whoa your kid spends a lot of time drawing like (laughs) really elaborate there's like the giant guy in the background and the little person in front and the fire guys flying over like it was just like a lot of work that was probably like when i started going above and beyond what a child of my age would do in terms of drawing and drawing comic stuff and race cars and airplanes and whatnot you
1: know when i think about your work now or generally as an adult and its relationship to comics there's obviously significant graphic sensibility, which I think in part maybe comes from really looking hard at a kind of drawing that was made for mechanical reproduction early. But I feel like it's also characterized significantly, at least in terms of painting, by your aversion to hairiness and therefore your aversion to seeing a brush mark. And so I'm curious about whether or not that aversion to hairiness is an extension of the aversion to hippiness. Is it like a hippie what does aversion
2: to hairiness mean? Are you asking me? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> either of you. Oh, yeah, aversion to hairiness.
3: I don't hear shit like, We used to talk about this all the time.
2: Yeah, Jim, get, get out of your world and come into the rest of the world. What does, what does that mean? Aversion to this hairiness? It's an interview, come on. Like Silver Surfer all day, all night? What does that mean? <laughs> like Robert Kram, like scratching Sean, away? You, you hate that? You try to explain what hairiness is. Okay. So,
1: in the way I'm talking about it, most simply, if you take a brush, which is hair that's been attached to a handle in a ferrule, okay. and you make a mark with it, you're making that mark with the hair of the brush. Chances are, most marks you'd make with it, you're going to see the index of the hair. Oh, okay. I know that Zach, when he's looking at a painting, does not like to see that index of hair. Okay. It's
3: like a hairy shape.
1: Right. In his own work, he goes to significant lengths, I think, to make a painting in which there's no indication that it was made with a brush, insofar as it's not hairy. You don't see the the hairy mark. Yeah,
3: it's a tapered shape. It also is like the old-fashioned inking style you'll see in some pulpy comics, where it's clearly a tapered, pointy line. Part of it might be the hippie thing, but also part of it is when I go to the National Gallery or something, cause like those museums were free and near where we lived in DC, you'd see a painting of something and it looked amazing. It looked like someone made a thing out of paint. St. George and the dragon, he like all this armor and this lizard and he's big and he's, and then you'd get up real close to it and then you'd see it was made exactly the way all the other paintings were made. A bunch of little tapered marks next to each other. And you're like, Well, that looks like it would take a long time and be hard, but it's kind of what you expect. Whereas when I have started to find paintings that didn't do that, I was much more amazed. They were much more surprising because they seemed to refer to some other process, you know? Like if you looked up close at a Pollock, the way that the paint would just hit the surface, that was like a perfect record of a moment in time of like, it was unique. Or you look at Francis Bacon, not most of a Francis Bacon painting where he's setting up the scene, but the weird part, the part where like the meaty face is exploding or Faces something. Faces all
2: smeared shirt. Yeah,
3: you look at that and you're like, I don't know how this was made. The feeling that you don't know how someone did something versus the feeling that you did know someone did something is in different ways for different people, an essential part of an art reaction, like of an excitement. How do they even, obviously for most people, it's not that brush mark doesn't, do that to them but for me it does it's just like oh yeah i know what that is that's just like 30 hours of going "Eh," like beige lighter beige lighter (laughs) beige next to it lighter. and i didn't like the way it would turn any surface like organic inorganic smooth soft into the same surface which was slightly rough little marks of hair like you see every day whenever anything in your life gets smeared it's the exoticism of painting that I like, I guess. The fact that painting is a completely artificial activity that looks artificial and it looks like nothing else that people see in a day. There was always a disappointment, even in a painting that I like very much in reproduction, if I got up close to it and I could see, oh, it's just done the way people do things. It seemed like a lost opportunity, you know? The really good example, if anyone cared, and was following me around is that uh, portrait of Wanda Pariah in the Met where it's Velasquez and the face is just a mystery like there's this underpainting and there's this weave to the canvas and you can see that those colors and shapes got there but how he got them there is amazing like you can't even tell and then as you go down maybe he was doing it faster maybe his assistants finished it but lower down in the painting when you get down to his clothes and stuff you're like oh that's just brush marks. That was part of it, as was maybe the hippie thing, as was the fact that, you know, like most of us, the art that I loved first, I had only seen in reproduction. Mm. And I was always amazed both with paintings and with comics when I realized that, oh, that's just a drawing. That's just something that you could do. Like I always assumed vaguely as a child that a comic involved some magical process in between, some machine that made all the lines smooth and made all the colors happen. But it doesn't. I think when I realized I was just a person drawing, I was like, wow, you could just do that.
2: I'm glad I asked. Break down the (laughs) hairiness. And you've also mentioned hippies like four times already, which I wasn't expecting at all. For Zach, you are a punk. How did you get into
3: punk? My parents were hippies. (laughs) You grew up in a good punk town. How did you get into punk? Well, I mean, my parents were hippies and I grew up in a good punk town. You know, you could stay home and play with wood, (laughs) or you could leave the house and slam dance in front of the ice cream store, which literally they would do. Imagine like a winding college town kind of street, okay? This is the main drag in Tacoma Park. Okay. Right near the metro that has like a hairdresser and a ballet studio and a karate studio and some Greek restaurant. And then a little gazebo with a little park, not a big park, but a little park. Across from the gazebo, there's Lickety Split, the ice cream store where Rollins got his first job, and the House of Musical Traditions, where you would get a sitar. That was where they got their instruments. One day, I just saw all these punks, like, they were literally slam dancing at the gazebo, and I think there was a demonstration. Like, someone was actually explaining to the crowd <laughs> of shopping hippies, like, this is what we call slam dancing. It was super weird. Probably growing up in New York, you like organically get introduced to these things. Whereas in DC, there's things and then someone gets paid to explain them to everyone. I think one day, one of my friends had gotten tickets to go see Guns N' Roses and I was talking about that at a party and we were like, oh my God, we're gonna go see Guns N' Roses, $30. And then my friend was like, I'm gonna go see Fugazi for $5. And I was like, $5, how is this even possible? And then from there, again, like those two things, probably the interview's over. That was the (laughs) beginning of the end for me. This is probably true of so many people, including people we've had on the show. You live in this part of town and you feel like you are a freak, and then you go and you're like, oh, but there's lots of freaks and some of them are attractive women. This will work out if I just try hard enough. And we went and saw Fugazi right before going to see Guns N' Roses. And we saw them and it was in a basement of a church and it was so hot, the walls were sweating. We sat on a table and the table collapsed in the middle. The sound was better if you put your hands over your ears, because you could actually hear it. And it was like the most different thing I had ever done in my life. It was this just exotic other universe in a way that Probably post-internet, you can't even get that feeling anymore. It didn't look like anything I'd seen in a picture. It didn't look like anything I'd seen on TV. And it was just another planet. A couple days later, I went and saw Guns N' Roses at the stadium where a rock and roll parking lot is filmed. Like this big stadium. And it was exactly what you'd expect. I mean, Guns N' Roses was great, it was Guns N' Roses, but it was like I was a million feet away and it looked like the MTV videos of them playing, you know, for a giant crowd. And I was like, I know where I'm putting my eggs. You
1: could have ended up at like a
3: honky-tonk club and it would have been equidistant
1: from your prior experience and exotic, but there must have been something specific about the punk scene that was attractive to you.
3: That's actually a really good point, because DC, the biggest two radio stations are WMZQ, which is the country station and the r and station, and DC also has the go-go scene, which is like mm-hmm. this completely indigenous live drums dance hip hop thing, which doesn't extend outside of DC. And it also has like a lot of reggae. It's a weird town. The country music was part of like a sort of normal background. Like my mom would be dating some guy and he had kids and we'd go see their family and they'd be out in the county and they'd be Merle Haggard. And that just felt like part of the normal, oppressive, usual country (laughs) music. And then on the bus every day, I'd take a bus for an hour because there were all these complicated integration schemes in DC. So I was in a really black neighborhood, but I was bused to a different really black neighborhood. And that was all R&B. That was the sound of going to school, New Edition and like Shalimar. That was all just like this undifferentiated haze. There was a certain kind of life that all that shit fit into. This is maybe a weirder thing, maybe has something to do with more than just me. Country music and R&B are both about communities, talking to each other kind of organically, the same way that reggae is for if you live in Jamaica. It's the sound of a community talking to itself about its own concerns and its own language. I lived in a community. Unless you live in a very, very insular, tiny universe, which there are a few pockets of this in the US, punk rock is always a critical voice. It's always a parasite yelling at. There's also like hip hop that's like this where it's clearly outside of hip hop talking to itself. There's this underground hip hop, which is like, you guys are all talking about this, but this is what's really important. So it never settles into being an organic part of anyone's life. There's never you walk into the supermarket and you're just hearing like exploited, play sex and violence. Like no matter how boring and how co-opted that music gets, there's certain extremes of it. They don't settle in with people trying to do normal daily work and school that was what I responded to. It's like a certain level of, this would never be part of your daily life, no matter who you were. I would see like four doors down, a guy with a car up on blocks. Guy was like, that's the country music house. And then like literally next door to my house, there was a bunch of girls who were all the girlfriends of these dudes in this gang called the Brown Union, which is El Salvadoran gang. And they were always blasting like new edition. (laughs) At school, you know, at prom, they would just play R&B. And I was like, this is like normal. This is like life. Whereas that was always a critical outside transmission from another planet, you know? Mm
1: -hmm. Whenever I do visits to art schools like Pratt or RISD or whatever, kids are still into punk rock and someone's making art art about, I'm getting someplace, which is that that seems to happen very organically, but Punk has not been digested by the art world in any meaningful way, the way that rock and roll or jazz or other things have. I was recently at a lecture of Benjamin Buchloh talking about Raymond Pettibone, which was a mistake for a lot of reasons. (laughs) He managed to talk about Raymond Pettibone for like an hour and a half without once talking about punk, which I thought was sort of amazing. There was a point at which also he mispronounced Pettibone's given last name as Gin as opposed to Gin. And it was a particularly embarrassing error because he was talking about a drawing that Pettibone made of Reagan, talking about how it's pronounced Ray-gin, (laughs) G-I-N-N, but he kept saying, Ray-gin. And I thought, if this man had ever once heard Black Flag or knew that Greg-gin was Greg-gin, he wouldn't be making this mistake. Not to go off on some crazy rant. No, take it. We're enjoying it. (laughs) Dovetailed also with his sort of suggestion that Seeing Pettibone for the first time, he was amazed because the last American drawing he'd been interested in was Jasper Johns and Cy Twombly. And now here's this guy making these narrative drawings with people and words. And, you know, as though there was 10 or 15 years of things that he's just completely ignorant of, despite being an art history professor. Anyway, but my point is, it's amazing that someone feels like they can speak authoritatively about something like that in the art world without having the first notion of punk as a cultural force. And so I'm just wondering if you feel like that's had any effect on your reception in the art world or if that's something you ever have to deal with.
3: It's an interesting and thorny problem. There's one thing which is like the Thurston Moore effect, which is anything in music the art world goes through Thurston Moore to have it explained <laughs> to them. So, like, they have a Bowie show, and they have Thurston Moore explains the Bowie show to you, and they're like, "Oh, we want to talk about Riot Girl culture," and they go, well, "Thurston or Kim Gordon? Like, what is this?" And then they explain. That's them, but it's also points to a larger thing, which is like punk was, of course, a big wide spectrum of things, and there's the artier end of it. The art world just kind of asks the artier end of it to explain everything to them in a wider. Spectrum, and this probably goes for a lot of things besides just like whatever we're into. Whenever there's something in the wider culture that has its own critical voice that is in its own way kind of a complicated cultural expression that talks about the larger culture and isn't just wholly about basic humanistic concerns, the art world kind of gets territorial and doesn't want to cede any of its juice to that. And you can see it with literature, where the art world has a real tough time. When literature says a lot of the same things that artists are trying to say, the art world doesn't really know how to always respond to it or integrate it or realize that it exists. With other kinds of music, when there's a real critical voice or a real something sophisticated going on there, They want to maintain an above-it-all kind of like broad view of the world. Like art talks about culture in a way that culture cannot talk about itself. Mm. That leaves artists free to do things like Lichtenstein can appropriate a comic book page that Jack Kirby drew and be like, well, I'm bringing a more sophisticated view to this without being like, oh, well, maybe Kirby was doing something sophisticated to begin with. No. Or you can be like, oh, I'm gonna use this still from a Kubrick film. It's like, well, maybe Stanley Kubrick was kind of an artist to begin with and was doing their own thing. There's a territoriality. And the more that that culture is owned by not art people, the worse it is. Like Goddard is an art person in a lot of ways. And so they're comfortable with being like, okay, Goddard makes films and they're art films and we're cool with that. But like a bunch of kids living in a squat who are saying, basically the same thing that like a Berlin painter is saying. They have a real tough time just being like, okay, those kids said it. We don't have to then say it again in another language to our people. And also, you know, there's probably like some complicated class things. The art collectors and the art critics generally come from a little bit more of an upper class than the artists themselves. It's really hard to swing a dead cat in New York without hitting an artist who was like a hardcore kid as a child. There's lots of them, but the critics and collectors who are evaluating them are less so. They don't get that or they go, "Oh, you've grown out of it or whatever. Your voice is different. it's like, you look at these people, it's like, no, it's like the same person. They used to draw a little cat sitting on a box in a sort of funky style and that would advertise their friend's show. And now they're just doing that again in oil paint and you're buying it because it's intriguingly faux naïve. We've not talked to a single artist on this podcast who grew up around any kind of music, who is like, yeah, I grew out of that, and now I have a different voice. They're just doing the same stuff. They're expressing the same ideas as far as they're concerned. That's pretty much what they seem to have say. You have a lot of people who just don't have those experiences. They haven't gone to those places. They're not ready to accept that Crass has elaborated a fairly complex situationist critique of America. That's just a band and they have a cool logo and people like them when they're young. And it's like, it's just one of those art world things. It's a class thing, I think. They swim around it, but they have a real tough time kind of just being like, yeah, that's it.
1: Well, coming back to what you said about literature, we want to talk about Gravity's Rainbow in in more detail in a bit. It's a book with which obviously you were significantly associated and it's widely considered to be a difficult book. And I know you as someone who enjoys difficult literature. And I also know that you're someone who writes a column called Decoder. I feel like this podcast itself serves a similar function of demystifying art. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your appreciation for difficult and maybe even off-putting literature while, you know, working to make art and the art world maybe more accessible or more understandable to a broader audience.
3: You kind of built it as kind of an opposition, whereas Mm. I kind of think of them as being similar in that I think a lot of people would agree to certain statements, but they don't think in those statements all the time. You could say like, conflict is a basic force in human existence. Everything could be described in terms of conflict. And there's probably like 40 to 70% of the world, they'd be like, yeah, I'll buy that for a second. But they don't necessarily look around a room and think of all the conflicts that are going on. I always think in the metaphor of an immensely complicated, but somehow legible network, that's the world. The world is really complicated and everything's connected to everything else in a way that eventually you could figure out. The maze or complex or a city or a dungeon, it's a web. That's how I think of the world. Things are connected to other things. When I came on Gravity's Rainbow, the way they described Gravity's Rainbow was like paranoid because that's also the same kind of thinking because you just see connections everywhere. But when I came on Gravity's Rainbow, the things that were very viscerally connected to anybody of that age, it was just like, you know, sex and death. And then things like how light bulbs are made and uh, how cities are laid out and like where rockets came from and where LSD comes from. Everything that I was training to be interested in by going to college and everything that I was viscerally interested in by being a young man growing up in the city were connected and it was about those connections. And I had, you know, been sitting in art school being told, you know, someone paints a banana and they go, you're not interested in anything but fruit, and this is about (laughs) fruit. And then someone else goes, but it's also about the sublime and you've just spent years (laughs) figuring out how to explain anything being connected to anything else if you want to. It was really like a book that was matching the paths that I had already had in my brain about how complicated and connected things were. And I remember this weird feeling, which I had always thought It'd be cool if there was a book that was like encyclopedic and it showed the connection of everything to everything else and i had that all the time i couldn't write it it would take too long and then eventually like the internet came along mm-hmm. and i realized like oh that was the book that i in my head should always have been written and it shows how everything's connected to everything else that wanted things to be explicable, but also the sense that they are, they're just complicated and being impatient with simple things and impatient with people going along with a simple emotion. And then that's the end of it was really there to me. Everything was about everything else that informs both the work that looks like that, but also the work that doesn't the stuff that seems like it's just, just like a girl in an apartment to me. Those things are all connected. Like, she's wearing a scarf. Where did the scarf come from? Where do scarves come from? Scarves are from from sweatshops. You know, with sweatshops, capitalism. It's all just one big mass. Hmm.
2: You were one of the guys that went to art school, the Cooper Union? Yeah. What was that like?
3: Well, I got to Cooper because um, I actually had to choose a high school because the school system we were in, it was like a late first Bush or early Clinton issue where they were like, trying to give public school students like choices about high schools if you were gifted. And so there was the math school, which was really good called Eleanor Roosevelt. And there was the art school called Suitland. And I had a big choice to make. All my friends were going to Roosevelt, but I took one visit to art school and I was like, oh, this is so much fun. So I ended up going there because I liked to draw comics at the time. So I was like a ninth grader. But then four years of these like super dedicated high school teacher, so it was a regular high school, but had this little art pocket. Mm -hmm. And so they were saying, you're gifted in art, you've gotta go to art school for four years, telling me that over and over and over, and I was stupid enough to believe them. I did, I was just like, entering contests and preparing portfolios and drawing you know, paper bags and flowers and models and over and over. Art school became like a foregone conclusion, which I guess was their plan all along, right? Like instead of selling drugs and playing basketball, I was going to art school now. And so then I went to Cooper Union. And it turned out that that high school was actually a pretty good preparation for Cooper Union. It was a very disciplined high school. Cooper Union, was a relatively disciplined place. It was mostly an art school. It's right in the middle of the East Village, 60 people in a class. Everybody was very competitive, but not in a mean way about like, oh, what are you working on? What are you working on? I meet people who went to SVA and they don't even know each other. It's so big, but like everybody, Cooper knew everybody else. You were talking about school a lot and art a lot in a way that I now realize afterwards a lot of people who went to art school did not do. Like either, like Sean, they were an art major in a school that you know didn't produce that many art majors. They were constantly trying to push themselves. Or they were in a, like sort of art factory where you know, like school was just like big complicated business and you could get really isolated because you were one of a few art students in a bigger place.
2: When you stopped making comics, started making other things, what were you making? I was making assignments. Okay. You don't
3: go to high school and draw Batman. You know, you draw a flower.
2: Eventually. Yeah. You're mostly known for pictures of girls. Yeah, I like girls. Pictures. We're just trying to get laid. What's up with that? What's, what's going on with all the girls?
3: In college and high school, that isn't even like a conscious process because like, they would like draw somebody and you're like, well, less lesser down. You know, like, and that's just what everyone's doing that like in school, like you're constantly painting and drawing people around you. But as I was doing that thing that all students have to do, I started to get in this mindset of like, I was looking at portraiture that I was seeing out in the world, including photographs. And I just wasn't seeing the people that I knew at all. Like, I'd see this girl with, like, bright red hair wearing this stripey T-shirt and, like, Beastie Boy, like, sneakers, and I'd be like, that person, I've never seen a picture of that person ever. You know, like, I felt like the world was not representing them. And I also just thought, like, you know, there are weird things you can do with color and realism if you're using these people who have these like super modern synthetic fabrics and like accessories and tattoos and like weird hair next to realism, like if you're just doing the portrait. Like there was like opportunities there and also there's niche that wasn't filled. And of course, years later, that niche is completely filled. In Vice, in YouTube, in like reality shows, you can see all kinds of people now in a way that at that time, Even though we all felt like we were in a completely oversaturated media environment, there were these people being passed over, and now it's not. That was part of the drive. The people that I know actually kind of the way they look seemed like a meaningful task. It seemed to offer a lot of opportunities to do everything that was hard or interesting in painting. Like you deal with color, trying to make people look the way they look, which is really hard. You can put whatever you want in the background. It just seemed like, why not hang paint on that and see how it went? That was the beginning of that.
1: Now, when I knew you at, at Yale, I knew you as someone who was a painter working in photography and often painting on photographs, but also presenting photographs as discrete artworks. And then that continued into your first few shows in New York. There may be things I'm not aware of because we live far away from each other now, but it seems to me that Photography and photograms, which used to be big parts of your work, have sort of fallen away. And I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit.
3: All of that stuff goes back to the high school. Like they were teaching us sculpture and they were teaching us darkroom photography and printmaking and all that. I had learned all that stuff in high school and like when I got to college, I didn't want to stop any of it. I was like, oh, this is all good. This is all fun. This is all crazy. So I kept trying to do all of those things as long as possible. And then printmaking, I realized after a while, it was just like, so much cleaning.
2: I don't and, know what you're talking <laughs> <am> about. And <laughs> I feeling like at the end, is
3: it always ends up looking a lot like a drawing. And then sculpture, where do you put it? And then photography probably hung on the longest because I had started doing these experimental processes where I was like taking paintings and sticking them in the enlarger. In and on top of the annoying fact that nobody understood it, like I would explain it to a critic and they would be like, So you collaged a bunch of drawings. I'm like, no, you're an idiot. And that was very frustrating. In the end, what eventually happened is in painting and drawing, if I tried hard enough, do whatever I wanted. And I felt like in all the other media, I was always approximating what I wanted. And sometimes it would be cool like you'd make an interesting collage but the collage would never be exactly what you would have done yourself what i do in painting is what i've learned from doing photography like how Mm. grain moves across a surface what makes something look plausible versus not like how you use a big black mass of just black but make it look totally like a real thing like an object with weight when i did something cool photography or collage i would always say to myself okay but what if i did exactly the same picture but i had painted it wouldn't that have been like 20 times more impressive and more fun to look at and so in the end like even though those processes turned out like things that i really enjoyed it was an interesting challenge to try to like make something that was so crazy as a painting that it didn't even matter like you wouldn't even look twice at one of those that does leave some possibilities by the side it does leave a few things by the road but it did lead to some really interesting things for me in painting, getting into what looks real or unreal. Like, a lot of people think my paintings are collages still. I think maybe the last review I had, I don't know how many years in, was like somebody who was like, it's a collage. I'm like, to read the label, Bag. So going back to, to Gravity's Rainbow briefly, we were living together while you were
1: working on that project. You very generously let me hold on to some of the drawings that you decided weren't up to snuff and you redrew them. Subsequently, I have them hanging in my house. And on a visit several years back, I remember you seeing them again and you said you felt like if you if you taught a drawing class, you would like to show them those drawings, the rejected Gravity's Rainbow drawings as examples of good drawings, but bad pictures. And I thought that was an interesting comment, and I wondered if you could talk about- What does
2: that mean?
1: Yeah, talk about what that means specifically for your ambitions as an artist.
3: Let's say you really like Shirley Basie's voice or Cyndi Lauper's voice. Any song they sing will feature that voice, but their really good song maximizes it. And you never realize this because your own standards always go up and you always kind of get bored with your own work. But there was a certain level of like, oh, Zack Smith can draw things to look the way they look, or he can make this effect happen. He can do whatever that is. Over time, I wanted to make a drawing that didn't just feature me drawing. I wanted to make a, a drawing that was like the most I could possibly do given that subject. Hmm. Something's on the Greatest Hits album. Although I
1: always think of you as a maximalist, and what you just said sort of underscores that. You know, I think at least one of those drawings, for instance, there's uh, Slothrop as Man in front of a tank, and in the final piece, it's just the tank, right? So there must be some idea that, like, Slothrop in the foreground is distracting from the greater virtues of that drawing, okay. right? Like, that that may be an example where just having a little less might make the picture better.
3: The thing about trying to do the maximum is that you're trying to do it because it's hard to pack in every single thing you could possibly pack in and still make it work. So you add something and it doesn't work. That's a normal part of the process of trying to make something that's very maximal. You try to put in purple and that tanks the whole project, or you try to put in vermouth and that's the end of that. Like, it works for like a lot of things. You know, in that case, the tank was the thing that I, you put all your energy into and it worked out. Although I think, you know, just for the people at home, we should just describe what the Gravity's Rainbow project was. Oh, sure. I took my favorite book, which is Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow, and I drew an image for each page. Like one of the images on that page, I did a drawing of
2: it. So you went to Cooper Union, you went to Yale. You never say anything good about Yale. You were always just like, oh, <laughs> Yale, that place. Was it a good experience for you or, or what? I mean,
3: no, I think some people have some like real traumatic experiences there. It's not so much that I had a bad time there because I had a, actually really good time there. It's that compared to all the other things a person could have done with those two years of their life, the Yale experience is kind of overvalued, mm-hmm. I don't want people to feel bad about not having gone to Yale. That's a thing in the art world, like, oh, one of those Yale grads. It was just a school and they did this and there were students. We were there at the same time like what Jenna Bush was there uh, or Barbara Seat Jr. And then visiting schools afterwards, like visiting students and doing like little lectures and stuff, you just notice like the grad school students at Yale aren't that better than the grad students anywhere else. It's less talking about like having had a bad time, which I didn't and more talking about how, It wasn't like something you should feel like you missed out on. There were parts of it that were creepy and toxic because they had tenured professors there who were bad people, objectively. There was this one teacher who looked at Sean's paintings and told him he was a sexual predator. That's not, that's That's not a a good human being doesn't do that period at all, much less in front of other people, much less to someone who they're being paid to help. (laughs) But that wasn't everybody. And I probably said it on this on the show before, so if it's in there, you know, indulge me. But like the people who had come from places like Cooper Union and other art schools, like probably UCLA in LA and undergrad in LA and New York, were used to the level of bullshit that art school produced when it was like everyone in the school was an artist and wanted to be an artist, and they were definitely had that those ambitions, and there was just tremendous bullshit. And they were used to the bullshit, and it kind of washed off them. Whereas the people who had come there from an environment where art was a rarer they were you know one of the only good schools and their students in their art school really got a number done on them and it was really toxic for them because they weren't used to that and they took what was said about them very seriously even though we weren't getting grades you know it was just pass fail and once every two years they get rid of somebody but they took what was happening to them seriously they took the criticism seriously and it messed some of them up because they either believed it which was bad because then they just did what their teachers told them, which is a bad thing to do. Or they dismissed everything, which means that their time there was less useful to them than everybody else's time there because they just had to spend all that time being like, yeah, I have to have a critique and I just sit through it. So figure out how to take what a random person says about your art and turn that into something that's fun or interesting or useful to you, even if you don't accept baseline The person is smarter than you is a skill. Learning how to be an art student is kind of a skill. Like maybe in the first year of art school, they should be like, this is how you handle what people say. Could be your mom. It's funny,
1: I I actually now teach a first year graduate seminar that's like that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, at least in part, I do feel like it's important to talk about that kind of thing. And I think maybe it comes from my having sort of felt like it would have been useful for me.
3: We had kind of been prepared for that. I mean, I was sort of like the ultimate art student in my high school, I had gone to this like public <laughs> high school that was designed to introduce kids to art. And we took art for four years in high school, right? And that was like the school in my district that we would always beat all the other high schools in the little high school art con- competitions. From that school, which was like one of the best art schools, high schools in the country, I went to Cooper Union, which is like the place you go, if you, it's free if you get in, if you pass that test. And then from Cooper, I went to Yale. So I was like ultra prepared. So I had sat through things where like Tommy was like, this reminds me of strawberry jam. And I'd be like, it's purple, Tommy. That's why it reminds me of strawberry jam. Can we move on to something important? And I had been doing that in seventh grade. Well, ninth grade, right? By the time I got there, I was a really good talker, which is a lot of what that school is. I was good at talking about why other people's opinions were bad and mine were better. The first thing,
1: as I recall, Zach saying to me, in Mel Bochner's first year seminar class, he said, fuck you, <laughs> fuck you. Why? Because my opinion was bad.
3: No, no, but this <laughs> is a, this was actually a great moment because I want to know if you still believe what you said. Do you remember what you said? I do, yeah. Can you tell us? This, this is an ongoing art fight in the world, I think. It's not a dead issue. What did you
2: say? What did you say?
1: All right, I said, I don't know that I necessarily believe that art gets better. I don't think it's like medicine, where like I'm glad that I go to the doctor now and I don't get like bled by leeches, but I don't know necessarily that I wanna look at any drawing made today as much as I wanna look at a Goya drawing.
3: The specific words that came out of your mouth was, you just can't draw like Goya anymore. And my thing was like, that was kind of a defeatist mm. sort of attitude which wasn't really exactly what you meant. But what the way it came out to me was like, it was kind of a defeatist attitude toward trying to compete skill-wise with mm. old masters. Mm. And I was like, fuck that. Because I had heard that a bajillion times, like Jacques-Louis David, you can't paint a foot like him. And I was like, who can't do that? That's a part of my personality, whether or not it's a good thing is like, yeah, no, you could do that. Those guys just practiced a lot. But no, yeah. I think that is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I probably agree with what you actually <laughs> meant, but no, I, I just jumped on yelling at you all right. But I was used to that. That was a normal day for me. That was Cooper Union would just be like, everybody like, fuck you. And we were taught to take that seriously. And then the nineties ended and no one did that anymore.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you graduate from Yale. Uh, what'd you do? Where'd you go?
3: I moved to an apartment between a pit and a whorehouse.
2: As we discussed (coughs) in McCarthy's episode, I remember.
3: Which actually would be a good name for a critical review of either Sean or my work, really, between (laughs) a pit and a whorehouse. I actually feel like I had had a weirder time between college and grad school, because between college and grad school, I ended up being an artist assistant for Tom Sachs, and I ended up going to Japan, and I had a bunch of weird jobs, and I was like, what am I gonna do with my life? And then I went to grad school. I just lucked out between grad school and real life, where I got a show pretty quickly. I was teaching Kaplan, I was teaching people like standardized tests. Then I lucked out because one of my teachers at Yale liked me and put me in a group show. And they said, how much do you want this painting to cost? And I thought, how hard would it be to get rid of this painting, take it out of my life? Like how much would that hurt? And I was like $6,000. And they were like, you're crazy. This is a good gallery and they can sell your painting for a good price. It was like a big poster size thing of my ex-girlfriend. What's a good price? I don't know. I never asked. I just said $1,000. That's a $6,000 painting. Like less than that, I've just lost a big important thing that took fucking forever to do out of my life. And you know, how much rent is that and whatever. And they're like, you're crazy. They might've like lowered the price to maybe four, but I don't know if they actually did. And then they sold it. And then the gallery came over to our apartment in Bushwick and we're like, so do you want to like be an artist who shows in galleries? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. And we live happily ever after. It turned out that Andy and Jess, it was a good time to be in that gallery, but there was so much other weird stuff going on at that time that kind of, made that not seem so strange. It was just like, you know, we we knew people were getting out of grad school and sometimes you have a show. And then it was like, oh, I'm gonna have a show. But we didn't know that this, like, I would be showing at this same gallery basically forever.
1: I don't wanna forget to talk about how you got into porn. That story, which to me has a lot to do with the way it turns out that a number of pornographers in LA were big pension freaks. And it's sort of Oops. like a pension plot in and of itself. That there's a kind of funny, paranoid quality to that, like the way that all these things are connected. That is itself like a pension subplot. Yeah. And I just wanted you to tell that
3: story. A little. You and I, Sean, had got out of grad school. and We were living together. Like a lot of things happened that were little fables of existing. You know, like I would work, paint a lot, and I was doing all right. And I would teach once in a while at Kaplan, but I was slowly doing less and less jobs. And you were working at a museum. And you would come home and we would both like complain about like dates we were trying to go on and girls. And I would like play video games in your room and you would be like, oh, I'm, I'm doomed. And I was like, oh, I'm doomed. And you're like, you're not doomed. You're clearly less doomed than I am. And I'd be like, maybe, you know, when we're painting, we talk about art all the time in a way that I don't, I feel like I was very lucky to get to keep talking about art so much for so long, like looking back. Cause I think most people get out right out of school and they just stop because you don't want to hear it because now you're a professional and you're just like, anything bad you tell me makes me feel bad professionally. Like, oh shit, I'm doomed. <laughs> Whereas I feel right. like we got to talk about stuff. And then you guys were doing, mm-hmm. a lot of indie comics stuff was going, because we knew John. There was just like a lot of creative, cool stuff going in and out of our apartment, even though our experience daily was like staring at a linoleum tile for being baked in the Brooklyn <laughs> sun and like nine eleven and just being like, oh, life is stupid. It was the best and worst. Creatively, like it was a good, Place to sort of boil your own paranoia into something bigger. (gasps) Okay, so the first step on that was Suicide Girls. Suicide Girls had their started as a website at the same time that I had my first art show. So that was sort of, of course, the beginning of the end of like the people that I know aren't being represented. But I also know you had brought home a copy of Punk Planet because you were always the one with the publications. You had Comet (laughs) Bus and all this stuff and it was like a punk porn issue and I was looking at it and I was like, punk porn, I need to be there. That's (laughs) right in the the center of the X. And so I think I wrote to Suicide Girls or they wrote to me and I was like, we're doing the same thing. We're recording a similar thing and I would like to do a project with you guys. And then Sean at Suicide Girls was like, I love your work. A lot of people write to me writing similar things, but you're actually like really interesting painter. And so I started like painting some of the Suicide Girls and I had already been painting like other girls I knew from like models and stuff. And eventually I got this idea that I would go to LA and write a little article about the naked girls out there. You know, cause this was still like a new, slightly exotic thing at the time. And I had been invited and people were like, oh, it'd be cool to meet you. And like my dad was still out there. My friends were still in LA. So I did that, I wrote a little thing. I met as many of those people as I could. And I just like kinda of wrote about like, "Well, the punk porn thing in LA and what, what are they doing? Which was pretty impressionistic and I didn't know that much, but it was a writing job. And I came home a year later. One of the dudes wrote to me and was like, I'm doing an autobiographical porn movie, and Thomas Pynchon's really important in my life, and I'd like to include your drawings in the movie. And I wrote back and I was like, Yeah, no problem. And I would like to fuck all the girls in the movie. It was a joke. And he was like, Oh, yeah, actually, we kind of need like a punk dude, because you know, that's when I was younger, that's how I looked, and send pictures. So then I went to this like suicide girl who i had been kind of sleeping with occasionally she was a photographer and i was like i need you to like take pictures of me with my dick hard She accidentally sent them to, like, a whole agency in Florida. But she took the picture and sent them over, and then they were like, yeah, you're hired. And I did not even realize at all, like, what any of this entailed. Like, I didn't get the scale of everything. And then I was eating with my friends, and I was telling them what was happening. They were like, you're gonna have sex in front of all these people? And I was like, oh, yeah, I am. I hadn't even thought about that. I was just like, that girl's pretty. I I had not even thought of that because I was so blinded by desire. And I was such a moron. Yeah, and then I went over, I did my first movie. What you can now historically look at is like, Boogie Nights, right? 70s porn, 80s porn, money, right? 90s, there was lots of money in porn. And then they started having so much money that they were giving money to freaks, like the guy who made the first movie that I was in, to make like weird little niche porn movies for people who are probably too young to be watching that much porn anyway. Not like they were underage, but they were just like, having lives so they didn't buy that much porn so that was like the alt porn era which was mostly economic it wasn't so much that the movies themselves were that different it was more just like they were giving money to people who had like gone to art film school and stuff to make movies and people who were like had little arty film ideas instead of giving money to just like make sure that somebody sees ron jeremy's dick and that Uh, Basically, transitioned or ended or crashed into the internet era where porn is free and everybody's a cam girl and, like, kind of nobody cares how many tattoos you have because, like, pretty much every person on the planet is, like, being in some kind of porn at this point. That bubble in the late 90s and early 2000s was what I had been inveigled into at that point. The interesting thing about porn is almost no one. Uh, with the exception of James Dean, grew up deciding I'm gonna be a porn star and then was. It is a group of shipwrecked people. All of them had gone off on some other path and then ended up there. And so it was very diverse in a way that the post art school world, not necessarily the art world, but the post art school world that I existed in wasn't. There were people who were like pension freaks. And then there were people who had been like drug dealers to the Rolling Stones. And there were people who just like showed up from Utah the day before. When I wasn't like outside of like, you know, the punk rock scene, I had been in a very academic environment, and those are the people I could get along with and had things in common with. So this was like a sort of new universe. Every kind of person is in porn. That was strange and new.
2: I like sex. We all like sex. But once it comes to the part where like, we're going to film you doing it, and I, I would probably be like, nah. I don't want to do that. Like what made you really still, once it hit you, you still did it. Because
3: I had a correct intuition that on the other side of that somewhat unpleasant experience, there would suddenly be a lot of girls that you would not otherwise meet who would like to sleep with you and some of them would be attractive. Maybe you don't want to like go on Oprah and be interviewed about your record, but you do want to be a famous, you know what I mean? That helped. Yeah, there are a lot of things about porn that are kind of dumb and, and annoying, or like any job. And I didn't need a job at the time. It was like, why take on a job? But then all the time, there were all these like lovely fans and uh, co-workers who were like, you know, treating me in the manner to which I had been accustomed. All right. But all yeah, right. I mean, it was a price, you know? You pay it, and it was like, oh, that's not so bad once that happens. And then when I wrote the book about that's porn, cool. I, there's a really tough thing that you have to do when you write it, and it's kind of coming up again on this documentary that came out, Hot Girls Wanted. You don't want to feed into the narrative of everyone in that job is damaged. On the other hand, you don't want to feed into the counter Hollywood narrative of like, hey, we're having fun, fuck all you people. And writing my own book and like keeping track of all that stuff, it's like on the one hand, you don't just want to like brag about how awesome things are because nobody wants to read that and it feels like a lie on some level. But on the other hand, you don't want to present everything as trauma and danger because that's not true either. It's just sort of like the pendulum swings are much wider than what I think most people are used to. There will be like these crazy ecstatic moments and there will be these like really fucked up, like beyond fucked up things that happen. Explaining that experience to people is difficult because the people who kind of most need to hear it are the people who are least wanna know about it. Mm. You guys are art people and you've always seen my work as art. You know? Yes. So I don't know how much of my David Attenborough of porn feeling is part of the experience of looking at the art, or anything else. I remember
1: reading a letter that Peter Saul had written to his art dealer in like 1971, where he was talking about how, like, you know, he wanted to become big as an artist in the hopes that he would eventually transcend the art world, that his work would start to become known beyond it. You know, I'm wondering if for you, you feel like the porn, the uh, the gaming stuff, are these ways in which you feel like you've transcended the art world and reached beyond it? Have have these activities translated into any kind of cultural capital within the art world? Or do you feel like they're obstacles in any way in that world? Or
3: People ask me a lot, like, whether porn has gotten in the way of like my art career. And my only answer is like, I don't know. Like nobody tells you. Um, (laughs) It's so it's impossible for me to say. Maybe dominating those questions is those three worlds have really different purposes in people's lives. And so the way that I interact with them is really different. Porn is a one way thing. You make it, you put it together, you send it out into the world, you get some money back. And then you interact a little bit with the other porn people and the hype machine. But the fans are, by and large, like an undifferentiated mass of people who don't want to talk to you because it's embarrassing to talk to you. Like once in a while, you'll talk to a fan, whatever. But it's only a world on one side. There's only the people in the movies. They talk to each other. The audience reception and the critical reception are like, not your life, you know? You don't interact with that. So it's kind of a one-way thing. Like it's almost like the most normal job in that way. Like if you work in the widget factory, you know the people who work in the widget factory, you send out the widgets. You don't like talk to the people who get the widgets. <laughs> That's not your life. Right. You're not worrying every day about that kind of constant thing. And with the art world, it's sort of this complicated, stratified thing where like, artists talk to each other and they talk a little bit to collectors and then they, they interact with criticism, but criticism is weird. But it's overall just completely hermetic. The public doesn't know about the art world. They don't really get any of the complexities of what's going on there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then games are completely different. Number one, the people who buy these things are a relatively small group of people anyway. And then the people who are interested in them are other game designers a lot of times. And so you're talking to your audience all the time because that's how you know if things work. Because you're like, oh, I put this together. I hope you guys enjoy it. Let me know if you think anything. And then you get an email back. Well, I did this and I did that, but my sister really likes you know this kind of thing. And so the spooky spider monster was too spooky because she's too young or whatever. So you're constantly talking to people about it. And it's constantly integrated with a sort of pop Thing because like the internet is the way people talk to each other but it's also like heavily influenced by nerds. Nerds are disproportionately interested in Dungeons & Dragons and they're disproportionately influential on the internet. So it's not like I've transcended the art world, it's more just like there are these three largely unconnected scenes that talk to me and talk to themselves in different ways and the degree to which they're not connected is real, or, and don't know how the other ones work is is kind of interesting to me.
2: What made you want to move to
3: LA? I was at, you guys know Jeff Lewis, the anti-folk singer. Oh, sure. Right? We all know Jeff and we're friends, and I was at Jeff's birthday party. It was right after me and Mandy had done a movie in LA, a porn movie, and I was chopping bread in the kitchen, and then uh, another folk musician was at Jeff's party and he picked up Uh, acoustic guitar, and he started playing, and the refrain to the song he was singing was, I wet my pants, (laughs) I wet my pants. And everyone started singing along. And so I went home and I said, Mandy, let's move.
2: (laughs) Really? Uh, Yeah. Never heard this.
3: Everyone we know in L.A. is a porn star or a stripper, and everyone we know in New York is an artist or a folk musician. And she was like, yeah, I want to move. And I was like, so we moved. And I think Sean was moving out anyway at that time and whatever. But yeah, also I think Mandy had a rough time in New York. We were living in Bushwick between a pit and a whorehouse. Before it was cool. Like, as I think usual. they had filled in the
1: pit by the time she got there. <laughs> I think it was now like a, a big orange building.
3: Yeah. I feel like Sean and I had done our job. We had gentrified the neighborhood. It was well on its way. We had been artists there for years and it was, you know, moving up in the world and it was time for us to move on and do that to another neighborhood. Like a year or two after I leave a place, it becomes really cool to live there. It was still a hellhole, and Mandy was like scared of walking around on the street by herself and had gotten yelled at a bunch of times. And I was like, yeah. And then when I got to LA, the weather is lovely and people admit that they want to have fun, which is a real big difference. And for the same basic rent, you have a pool on your roof, which you can use year round and you can leave the house any month. You can just go somewhere. Also, I had like a big speech about how like after nine eleven, like all New Yorkers are like, we're so tough and we're so smart. But after nine eleven, they they weren't really that much tougher, or smarter than Los Angeles people. So it was like, Abraham Lincoln said he'd be happy to live in Russia where they take tyranny whole without the base alloy of hypocrisy. I was like, you know, if people are just gonna be stupid, I might as well be in a place where nobody has a pretense of not being stupid. But that all is rationalization. The weather was nice and the girls are pretty and the grass is green, and now I'm stuck. <laughs> what do you do?
2: It's, it's very normal for you to put this huge importance on I have to be near where girls are pretty. I'm painting pictures of girls. I need to fuck girls, even if it's for porn. It's just very normal to you just to be like, yeah, this is important. We're we're hanging out. What I'm trying to get to is the high importance you put on girls and being with girls and loving the ladies.
3: Yeah, It's very high on your list. Can you talk about that? I've never been anybody but me. So I have a tough Mm -hmm. time projecting myself into someone else's consciousness on that score but I'm not a family person. People who are family people have the same impulses but are more balanced, maybe. They're like, you know, I'm attracted to people and I wanna meet them and, you know, like have sex with them and whatever. But I also have like other things I'm interested in. And once I meet someone I like, we will cultivate these common interests. And I'm never gonna do that. I'm never gonna have a kid who's gonna have to learn from my wisdom of things, you know, for 14 years of not doing things like chasing women. So. I don't have that mindset and I'm just this terrible monomaniac like in the end. Depending on where you are in life, certain people can totally relate and other people are like, it's really weird like that you're just like, you love the ladies. And I'm like, yeah, I guess, is that that weird? I don't know. Sees so like, Justin's over there like nodding, like, no, it makes perfect sense to me. That's the thing. It's like, you say that to like a lot of, heterosexual men and lesbian women, and they're like, no, that makes perfect sense. I would do that if I were you. And then other people are like, what's up with that? You're just, and I don't think people talk about it very much. I mean, I think that's actually a really interesting thing about the porn sex conversation. We have so many jokes about sex. There's so much content, there's so much glamour, and there's so much sort of superficially interesting things to say about it that people don't really talk about the reality of their desire and how that works into their life and how they organize their life. You know, Sean's work is about that too. It's about how strange and sort of little chemical bomb sex and sexuality are when integrated into the life that we're all pretending we're supposed to be living because society is built around including children. Children are normal and that's how we get more society is people have children. We have an idea of family entertainment and we have an idea of a family-able street culture. When you're out on the street, everything should be basically children friendly. And that limits the degree to which adults talk about the nitty gritty of how they're organizing their lives around things that are not suitable for children. The degree to which people are honest about it and they get embarrassed and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a limit to the sort of public honesty. You know, despite everything we know about people, we still would have a tough time electing someone who was divorced and you know hadn't remarried, like a single person. You know, we elected Donald Trump, but a single person would be like, hmm, I don't know about this. There's strange things about that in the public discourse because the left hand and the right hand don't talk to each other very much. I think it's pretty normal in a lot of ways to organize most of your life around trying to sleep with people you think are attractive. I think a lot of people do. it, But I also think that just saying that, it disinvites a lot of people from the conversation. It's like a lot of sure. people are like, okay, I'm going to tune this out now because it's boring to me or it's not my life or it's not the way I organize my shit. On top of that, there's a sort of newer and more interesting thing, which is that the time at which just the basic base level experience rather than the production but the the life experience of straight white cis heterosexual males people are starting to realize they feel like they've done that like they've seen all of that when you're hearing about just a person's experience like they want uh your work still like they'll be like yeah like if you made a cool TV show we'll watch it. If you made like, you know, you you own something, you know, we'll participate in it. You can make music, we'll listen to it. But just being interested in that experience, like what's it like to be a straight cis het white male is actually like losing currency very fast. In order to be interesting simply as a life, in the novelistic sense of like, here's a normal life and here's a description of it. It needs something else. Like it needs some other element. You need to be a little bit weirder or a little bit more off of like what uh, literature has created as the norm. That's an interesting place to be in if you happen to be one of those dudes. Cause you're like, oh, the story of Zach isn't an interesting story anymore. It might've been like 20 years ago. Now it's more like, I would like to push my work up to the front and be like, look at the work. The work is about things that other people go through. And people have like a real, they've read Philip Roth and Saul Bellow and John Updike and all these white dudes explaining what it's like to to be a white dude for 70 years of life. And now there's these other lives that it's just life and it's not work. It's not shined up into something that's entertaining on its own. People are like, yeah, okay, dude, we're, we're done hearing about it. But then there's this counterforce of like, yeah, but that is my experience. You know what I mean? Like my experience is I go to get a sandwich at a restaurant and I see someone's ass and I just think about their ass for the rest of the day. You may be sick of hearing about that experience, but it is my experience. Like it's the only experience I have access to. And so the thing that's most important to you is something that's a really old hat to other people, but at the same time, thousands of people can relate to it and it's not going anywhere and sort of a baseline issue of the species is interesting. I think that's one of the reasons that Lolita keeps being read as a novel is like right up front, Humbert says, I'm a gross person. (laughs) You should hate, like he's a pedophile, right? The disclaimer, yeah. Yeah, like the whole novel is written to an unsympathetic audience about unsympathetic desires people will always read it as being like, wow, you're a creep, but this is beautiful the way that you're invested in this sort of, the way that you talk about it, you know? And I think that every single straight, white, cis, het, male guy should probably think about that position. Straight up and just say like, there are many things that are just simply like not, maybe not gross, like Humbert, but more just like, we don't need to be centering that, but look what I can do. And so taking myself out of that whole thing, simply saying like, as a, like, if it doesn't interest you that like, yeah, I'm chasing ladies all the time, then take me as a character out of it and just be like, okay, well, here are the things I had to say about them. Here are the women. That was the kind of thing I tried to do when I wrote We Did Porn. It's like the first half's about me because it is kind of a funny story about how I ended up in porn. But the second half is like as much as possible trying to be about these other people and their lives and what it's like to look onto them and like the variety that I can see and, and like what I can tell you about them that isn't through the lens of me being like a cool, interesting artist guy. That's an interesting challenge. Like you don't get as much free dazzlement as you used to. Like, oh, you're an artist. That's great. Like, yeah, now you've got to work a little harder. There's a lot of these dudes running around being interesting. We now have to like show people that we still have things to say about stuff that they care about.
2: What do you want people to take away when they see your portraits of the ladies and their punk? And like you, you mentioned before, it was pre internet and now the internet is here. But you know, you're still doing your thing, you're still being Zach. What, what, what do you want people to take away from your pictures
3: nowadays? I feel like I'm making lots of different kinds of pictures. I think every artist thinks that their work is like changing all the time and it's very different and everybody looks at them and they're the other. That's the guy who does the dolphins and they're like, but they're different dolphins and now that, you know. Sure. (laughs) I mean, I always just wanted to make the most beautiful picture in the world and all of them are just attempts to do that. Like when I did 100 Girls and 100 Octopuses, the idea is that if you did the same picture 100 times, maybe you'd get one that was perfect. I like people to look at paintings for a long time I think that's a way that mm-hmm. paintings can compete with a uh, media that moves is if you feel like you have to keep looking at it like for three four five minutes or an hour or you have to like own it to see all the stuff inside of it i think looking for a long time is like maybe a uh, an important element of what i think of as beautiful
1: well going back to what you were just saying about if i understood correctly feeling like you want to foreground the lives of others, not necessarily your own experience, but others. I mean, do you feel like effort put into drawing people into looking at a thing longer? Do you want empathy to grow out of that? Do you want someone looking at these people in their lives, like the, that the length of time, the seduction and looking becomes actually like a kind of understanding of those people in their lives?
3: It's important. I don't know if I could ever have that ambition in the work. Like, I don't think you could ever say, I want people to do this and then they do it. No, fair enough. Simply presenting them as people probably helps certain people. But if that was the main ambition for the work, I could do the paintings in almost any kind of way. I think Mm -hmm. it's more about externalizing and crystallizing and freezing certain things about your own observations Mm -hmm. so that they're outside of you now and are not attached to your personality, and they're sort of their own thing. If you see somebody's skirt as being like jewelish blue that kind of hits, the light hits it in a certain way, just take that observation out of you and put it out there so that you can come back to it in a few months and look at it as just a thing in the world and other people can look at it as a thing in the world and it just becomes like one of the phenomena that make up the world rather than something that's, that's you and that's attached to you and about you and and that you have to somehow think about all day. Hmm. Um, You know, in the end, like all those paintings, I don't know how much they tell you about any of those people. I, I actually kind of interested like what other people think, like do they feel like they've, humanized people that they didn't really understand or whether they just think like oh like i i don't know there's a, there's a difference between stuff that you actually think is in the work and stuff that you just think it's a good way to get you started sure it's like if you go see the biggest ball of twine in Arizona what you really want to do is have a road trip but you know it's a good reason to get your four friends in the car you're just like yeah we'll go see the biggest ball of twine in Arizona and while you're going you talk about that and you think about how that might be interesting. But then by the time you go and you come back, you've done way more interesting things. So like saying like, I want people to understand that like, okay, like this girl, she's this kind of girl. Like Bailey J has a cock or April Flores is really fat. They're both beautiful though. Maybe just putting that person in front of people is is a noble thing. But then after that, you're spending a month doing a painting when you could have just given them a photograph, you know? so. You're like, oh, I'm humanizing people. But that in the end, I don't think art succeeds when it just appeals to people's goodness. In the end, like food, art has to appeal to your desire. It has to taste good. You know, it has to appeal to the, the needing, wanting part of you. And that's the good stuff. I can't just be like, oh, you're gonna feel empathy. If you do, good. But the main thing is, is I want you to feel something strongly because you're in the presence of the sublime. With luck, Right.
1: Speaking of desire, I think about how we started by talking about your exposure to hippie culture at a young age and your aversion to it. And you saying, like, we could end the interview here because it's maybe the key to the whole thing. Yeah. And I think about, you know, the, the Zen middle name and the way. And I remember you telling me, like, 15 years ago, you said something like, the Buddha says that desire is the root of all suffering and that therefore to be happy, you need to let go of your desire. I think that the... Lack of fulfillment of your desire is the root of all suffering. Therefore, I am close to my desire. I work toward fulfilling my desire.
3: Yeah, and I think that that's really just like a really normal thing that people feel. And and Hollywood people all Mm -hmm. the time, you're like, well, you could get whatever you want and, (laughs) and never be happy. And you're like, I've had days where I got exactly what I wanted and I was happy. It's important to like say that like, yeah, like sometimes Things line up and you have a really good day and you're like, oh, that was good. I had a desire and it happened and now I'm happy. And like, I'm a materialist. But I also think that like maybe as a painter, I'm a materialist. Like I'm really, really, really. I respect the world, not spiritual ideas about the world. The effect of art on people. My interaction with art has so much to do more to do with the material than than things that are kind of imposed and social and spiritual. Like I think a lot of people play with symbols and they feel like the symbol has a power greater than what it looks like. Whereas I feel like you look at a symbol long enough and it reduces down to what it looks like. There's something very, very physical and material about the way I deal with, with everything. In the end, it's about the stuff. It's about the stuff that you can touch and look at. I don't know what my work looks like from the outside. So, the questions that I would get are interesting to me because I would never think to ask them. So, I, I don't know what you guys think when you see a new show. And you think, oh, is Zach doing the same thing again? Or are you like, oh, you're doing this now and that's weird? So, that's the stuff that I'm always curious about. But you can't force that. You know, it's like the, those questions are either in your head or they're not, you know?
1: Hmm. I'm thinking back to the last show I saw. And um, my first impulse is to say, like, I get out of your work what I get out of a lot of great painting that I love from art history, where I feel like I'm being shown what the world looks like at a particular point in time, which I think, by the way, is not something that a lot of painting necessarily gives us now. And I am also amazed at the articulation of that. You know, I always worry that maybe it sounds sort of facetious when I say, for instance, that like, I think you are maybe the greatest painter of pizza, but uh, it's not facetious. Pizza is a thing that is a part of our, you know, a nearly ubiquitous part of our world that painting really, I mean, maybe Ted Minio has taken a stab at it and there's some other people I'm not thinking of. <laughs> I am genuinely thrilled by the articulation of something like that. Uh, but what, what I might ask
3: about it, I'm not,
1: I'm not sure. Pizza goes so well. Not to
3: think about Dr. Pizza goes well with Dr. Pepper, is nice what Justin's alchemical. saying. <laughs> okay, so if you're a good painter of pizza, but then pizza is exhaustively photographed, right? So what do right. we need a great painter of pizza for? People know what pizza looks like. What does a great painter of pizza do that a great photographer of pizza hasn't already done for well, us or, or film on Obviously,
2: for? we're interested in craft, obviously. You know, we, we like some good craftsmanship. Well, not only that, but I just, I think that um, pizza as a
1: subject, it aligns with your specific craft very well. The specific viscosity of the paint as it's used to indicate gooiness or fattiness, that's where I'm getting something that I, won't, I don't get from a photograph of pizza.
3: Cause I always think like when Ted Minio deals with pizza, it's like a symbol of friendliness in his work. I just think of like a a sort of cozy kids libraries and like, oh, we're going to have pizza. And and there's something like fun and childy about his pizzas and the way he makes the pizzas and they're kind of toy-like. And I like them. Whereas for me, there's something about how like a pizza, it shows up and it's hot and it's like glistening and wet and it's shared and then it slowly sort of fades Jeez. into the, yeah, it, it fades into the background, but it's still pizza. It's even cold, it's good. <laughs> it's like sushi and that presentation is a big part of it, like visually, when you can look at it and you know where you're, because nobody gets a pizza because they want a meal so much as they get it because it's it's like a collective, it's collective, <laughs> but it's also tasty and casual There's pizza delivery boys, and they're in porn all the time. Like, it's like about desire, but it's also about something shared and social. There's no other food that's like quite so oily and greasy right on top. You know, like dessert, it's not like a cake. Although there are a lot of artists who do some cool things with cake and the way cake looks like paint and icing and stuff. Cake is with you on a special occasion, or if you're eating it without a special occasion, it's a symbol you're going downhill. Whereas pizza's like, everyday desire. That you're like, you know, oh, you saw some pizza at someone's house, so what? But at the same time, it's pizza. It's magical. Sort of (laughs) like, it's not a mundane food. There's something about its ubiquitousness as like a normal thing, but at the same time just being so kind of special that I think maybe makes it something that you could invest a lot of paint into and it feels right. The one I did that has like more pizza in it than anything is the one of Brandy Aniston. It's cut up into a bunch of different panels, you know, (laughs) rather than being one big portrait. So Brandy was this beautiful girl and she had her birthday party at this bar called the Down and Out. So, you know, she was really great and I took a bunch of pictures of her and I was like, oh my God, she's so hot. And then we went to her birthday, she was like, come to my birthday party at the Down and Out and she had like It was a big bar and she had pizza at her table. And I just remember her, we're going to her party and she was just sitting there talking to us with this big pizza that, you know, her and her friends had been at for about three or four pizzas. And the rest was just there, just sitting there. And like for an hour or two, we talked and she did not offer any of us any pizza. So. (laughs) I (laughs) don't that's horrible. I don't don't think it was like an objectively mean thing. It was just like, she didn't. uh, Think of it, sure. There is a certain fickleness about desire. You go around wondering, like, you've got all this pizza and you probably wouldn't mind if I had some, but has it ever occurred to you to offer me some of your pizza? Like, I feel like people feel that way sometimes about other people. Like, you have it and you clearly aren't like real protective of it, but like, I'm, I'm right here, you know? So that whole painting is like, there's a massive, massive panel with her, just her tits in it. And then right next to it, like this massive picture of this pizza dripping. And then the rest Mm -hmm. is like pizza from different angles and brandy from different angles. A thing you and I have
1: in common, and I could be slightly wrong about this we have a soft spot for Viennese modernism. Oh, yeah. As opposed to like Parisian modernism. Yeah, I feel like in a way. Parisian
3: modernism. (laughs) This is why you're here. Because most people would have said French modernism and you said Parisian.
1: I I mean, I I have a lot of
3: thoughts about that and why that
1: is. Maybe I'll I'll stop there and ask you, what do you, you know?
3: You know, if only there was like an art podcast where like two guys could just sit and talk to a a niche audience about such a niche concern, (laughs) that you could develop a conversation around such an idea. Parisian modernism versus Viennese modernism. So for those of you uh, without a scorecard, (laughs) Parisian modernism is like painting when it started to not look like pictures of stuff. You know, Impressionism and then moving into Cubism. Monet, Picasso, a lot of the more famous. And then Viennese modernism would be the sort of twisted, not quite German freaks where everyone's holding their hands in a weird way, like um, Klimt (laughs) and then Egon Schiele, of course and then maybe kakoshka and stuff like that. Parisian modernism. Oh, there's so many things wrong with Parisian modernism, right? <laughs> Number one, everybody's happy. Like there's grass and like girls in hats and cute dogs and they're just like, yes, but what if everything that was happy was kind of blurry also, you know? And you could like project onto that like some kind of ennui and despair and, and disturbed psychology, but in the Viennese it's right on front because instead of painting in a blurry way, they were like drawing, which is all twisty and they would make these crooked angles and it was like, everything's fucked up. But also like just drawing as being sort of the core of it, like the sharpness of it, the sharp transitions and lines that I think to me me feels so much more modern than just like a overlap. The way that Parisian modernism, including Picasso, and the people right after, the way they use paint seemed to me in the end very old, allied with older, more traditional things. It was about creating these sort of smooth, transitional surfaces that in the end were made of hairy little bits of paint. Even though they were painting in all new shapes, they were using a lot of the same colors, like a lot of the same browns. And then our visual culture now is so graphic. It's so much about drawing. And there's so many different kinds of drawing you see now because of like computer graphics and stuff. Viennese modernism was way out of the curve as far as I'm concerned. Like the way that, you know, Klimt would mix a completely realistic face with like a completely flat gold background is just the kind of thing that you would see all the time now. But, you know, they invested in this hard way. And while the angst, oh, these modern times, like <laughs> just seems so much more about things that are interesting to me. I was watching The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari the old German Expressionist film. So this is like, you know, 30, 40 years later, but it's an early black and white film, so it's very contrasty. So all the faces and the people are very contrasty. And the backgrounds are painted. They're just white backgrounds with black things painted on them. But because it's so contrasty, the people merge with the backgrounds. So because they're using this stylized world The realism of the faces melds almost seamlessly with the expressionism and weirdness of the background. That was a really key thing to realize that I hadn't seen that movie and then decided to do that. I had been influenced and interested in artists who had been doing that. If we just make the person a little weirder and we make the made up stuff a little bit more real, then they merge into a nightmarish, psychologically complicated whole. In the end, I just feel like the Parisian stuff was so often just sort of bland subjects experimented with, but it experimented with this sort of bland spirit. Like, what if the newspaper was next to the wine glass? Was if the letters in the <laughs> newspaper are bigger? <laughs> Does it talk about language? I'm like, why are you talking about language? Like, who cares? Oh, a sad Spanish man with a guitar, like, He's still sad. He's just sort of sad at an angle now. Like, like I don't know. Like, what did Picasso or Monet have to feel bad about? Picasso could roll up and just paint a girl looking like a piece of macaroni, and she would just be like, "Oh, you're Picasso." Like, he, he seemed to have no desire I could recognize and no problems. His problem was he didn't have enough food because he was a painter. Like that's the job, dude. Like he had the Civil War.
2: Guernica. Yeah, Civil War, people yeah. get it. But he was in
3: but
1: he was in Paris. He wasn't fighting he, with the apartment.
3: Guernica! He was in Paris when he painted it. And did you notice how the most famous anti-war painting? totally stopped the war and totally made Franco not be a fascist dictator of Spain for 40 years? Wasn't it such a good idea for him to paint that? Didn't that horse head yelling at a fucking, fucking Looney Tunes light bulb really help? Exactly. Like, everybody like talks about Guernica like is a big deal. It's like, that was a waste of time. It didn't work. Right,
2: don't, don't, give, don't give me the role of the guy that's <laughs> defending Guernica and it being this powerful thing. I'm just saying, he was like, oh, shit, that's fucked up. I'm gonna make a picture about it. And he did. Yeah, it did. i not, not work. it on a
3: pedestal. So. <laughs> Instead, he should have made, he should have sold it. And I mean, for all I know, he did. And donate the money to the resistance. But the point is, like, I feel like there's a lot of, Worlds of like art historically accepted shittiness are sort of integrated into that painting. The symbolism, like I've seen a bajillion art students make paintings full of symbolism, and then they look at Guernica and they're like, "Yeah, see, full of symbolism." And people analyze it, and they as a and then, like they analyze it because it's famous already, not because people haven't look at paintings nowadays and go, "Well, you put a horse next to a light bulb, looking at a guy screaming at the sky, like." I'm going to decode this because I'm sure at every painting someone makes mean something. It started a lot of bad practices or was involved in a lot of bad practices. and But I also just, in the end, there's nothing of that twisting and turning that he does to the form seems to be to any purpose to me. Like, it just seems like he's doing it to do it. It turns out not being very exotic or interesting, which might just be because I'm so used to seeing them, you know, they're Picassos. He stole it from African art, art. and African art's fantastic. He stole it poorly from African art. Like in African art, the twisting and the turning is about attempting to reach an other world, to conceive an other world with other creatures than us that are involved nevertheless in in human life, and so you're closing your eyes and you're picturing something and you're like, and in many ways, they're a lot like medieval art where, you know, they would draw angels and devils that were in their imagination, but they they didn't think of it as their imagination. They thought of it as uh, God was telling them what the other world was like. And in African art, they were doing that. And Picasso, like, he didn't have that fullness to it. Like, it was just like, We'll make a face a little bit weird and then we'll make her arm a little bit weird. And then it was just like, and I'm Picasso. People like me, everything's gonna be fine. I'll make a sort of brownie orange because that's like a normal art color, right? Brownie orange. Is there anything else in the house I could make brownie orange? Hey, do you have any like ravioli I could paint? That's kind of brownie orange. Viennese modernism always felt like there was ideas about the world or about the self that were being pushed forward by distortion
1: yeah it seems like an incredible effort at refinement while understanding very deeply that i'm a maniac i'm a total freak i'm about to come apart at the seams and yet i'm still trying to find my way towards something extremely refined.
3: Yes, it's like what we were saying before, like when you (coughs) see someone out on the edge of their talent, you know, like with the tarot cards, like there was a sense of like that person, it wasn't just that they could paint something in a weird way, it was that they could paint it in a weird way while also they had a responsibility to show you a specific thing, a specific gesture, a specific face, a specific person, or even a specific town, but somehow, I have to show you, I have to do these two things at once. I have to show, them how, show you the world while this twisted sensibility is like pushing me to say all these things about it at the same time. Whereas Picasso always seemed like he was, and many of the Parisian modernists, feel like they had the imperative to change paintings so they would look differently, but it wasn't working against some other imperative very aggressively. It was just like, oh yeah, you could simplify a bull down to like a big V shape. I'm like, yeah, you could, there you go. You did it, dude, congratulations. If you were also trying to make the bull seem frightening or making the bull seem impressive or making the bull seem like it was a god, which is what they were trying to do in Africa, then you would have a more complicated challenge, you know, that to abstract while still holding on to some essence or viscera of the thing. I think Vuillard and some of the early Impressionists, Degas, often, you did have that tension where it was like, (laughs) we're trying to abstract while still being like, this is what a horse is like or something, like something essential. Giacometti, definitely. But like, the sense of going after something essential that gives those paintings their tension just I don't think is in Picasso for me. And so when I see them and they are in a middle class home, it seems very normal. It's like, oh the sad guitar player and the sad clown and the table with the newspaper on it. And yeah, you could paint a violin and it would be weird. What is it about violins that makes you give a shit either way? Make the violin all cut up. There's no animating thing going like, ah, my hand wants to make the violin twisted, but my mind wants the violin to be pure and correct. Like there's just, no, he's just like, I'm Picasso, I make it fucked up. I invite
2: listeners to write in need art at Gmail to to argue. With Picasso's not
3: the worst person. Has anybody ever done that? World? Though, John, no. does anybody ever? Because we're I'm constantly talking smack on that dude, and and nobody ever writes. No, that. that's
2: why that's why I'm inviting people to. So we'd like to hear other opinions.
3: But this is uh, why art is a special field because no one cares. Like, there <laughs> so any special. right? No, but is there any other thing that we could talk about in a podcast? where people would not be like offended that we had just like slammed the most eminent practitioner in the field. Like, no, people we would have, have a people thousand argue comments.
2: About the most minuscule things on the internet. Yeah, you know, that
3: they- yes, but for some reason, art, they, they're just like, eh, whatever, say what you want. Is it a blessing or a curse? I don't know. That's that's
1: a good question. I had the opportunity to visit Vienna a couple years ago. I was really struck again by like, you know, that it there's something, very beautiful. When you were talking about desire and the way that maybe art needs to speak to the way people aren't necessarily good, something like that. Yes, the Viennese, they want to sit in a like nicely appointed cafe and eat a delicious cake and drink a delicious coffee and listen to someone play chamber music. But I feel like in so much of their material culture, that thing is always played against some understanding that deep down everyone in this city is a maniac. Even though I would, I started this by by playing against Parisian modernism. And I just, for me, I you know, when I saw Guernica at the Reina Sofia, I was plenty interested in it. I like it as a painting. I don't think Picasso is the worst, <sighs> but I do think that to me, there's something maybe more more relatable about the tension in Viennese modernism you know, Matisse was an anxious guy, but his objective, generally speaking, I mean, I'm speaking very, very broadly about certain kinds, of, but I think when he paints a still life, I think it's generally supposed to be about the kind of like gentle phenomenology of like experiencing the flower and the Southern French light from the window behind, you know, and all of that's very lovely. And I I can appreciate a lot of the, the color and light and touch in the painting, but I feel like, like you're saying, I, I can very, easily imagine it in a comfortable, nicely appointed home, admired by someone generally relaxed, where I feel like I appreciate the way that in Viennese modernism, you know, like everything that is pleasant and beautiful is like shot through
3: with a kind of mania or anxiety. Your description of Vienna is like, that's Los Angeles. Mm, like yeah. the, everyone's like a swimming pool. You're going to get some sushi <laughs> and like kale and everyone's going to be beautiful. But at the same time, there's, and everyone knows this, everyone in this town is a maniac. Um, Mm, mm -hmm. Maybe like Paris, like New York, kind of assumes that its culture and its cleverness and its intelligence and its difficulty and struggle is in the fabric of itself. So that you just have to show Mm. the city. You just show us Paris and we will see the complexities of Paris. You show us New York and we will see the complexities of New York. In LA, It is very clear that there is a great deal that is hidden. They say it in LA story. Like the girl's like, it's a city of secrets. You go down the street and there's like a car shaped like a hot dog driving next to you. And then, you know, somebody in like a yellow roadster. But there's also like all these like neighborhoods and neighborhoods full of like buildings that look way more boring than New York because they're flat and like long and like they're not dense like New York and there's palm trees and there's this sort of blandness to like big stretches of it. But at the same time, you'll hear these stories of like what's going on in all those houses. I spent Mm. a crazy night at like allegedly one of Johnny Depp's houses when Marilyn Manson was living there. And Manson was, he was showing me Johnny Depp's theremin and he was like, don't touch the theremin. And he was like, showing me Hitler's copy of Faust. And, he, and I was saying like, oh, well, I have a copy of Faust, my girlfriend gave it to me. And he's like, but this is Hitler's copy. And I was like, oh, mine's like a first edition, it's like a Harry Clark illustration. And he's like, this is Hitler's copy of Faust. Like <laughs> Marilyn Manson behind the facade of a completely ordinary suburban home, like yelling at me that my cop first edition of Faust is, is like not that cool, like compared to, because he has Hitler's edition of Faust, and if you've been walking down the street at night, you'd just be like, oh yeah, Hollywood's looking pretty dead tonight. Like, and then meanwhile, like all the other psychodrama going on in the house, like it's I'm like, why am I in Marilyn Manson's house? Like all you know, like all of that sh- yeah. You know, like and in New York and Paris, and maybe also London, you can at least have the illusion, convince yourself that the landscape itself is maybe more expressive than it is. You know, like how many times can you paint the Domino Sugar Factory? Is the Brooklyn Bridge, it's a marvel of engineering, but like, is it really blowing your mind that you're looking at the Brooklyn Bridge? <laughs> There's a lot of public art in New York where you can see the public artists in, in a good way, in a humanistic way, but they're also like wildly enchanted by public works in New York and just the energy and the guff and the whatever the the gumption it took to, to make that. And then they look at it and, and it's like, yeah, it took a lot of like, clever Robert moses thing to do that thing, but it's like, is it really sublime? Or is it just like, that's New York and it kind of casts this glow? Like that piece where somebody made the steps of the William Burns Bridge gold. Mm. Nobody would ever do that in LA. In LA you'd be like, <laughs> that's one more secret thing in LA that's gold that you'll never find because you're in traffic. But in New York, it's like, oh, there's this X number of bridges and they're the important and there's monuments and there's seasons, which means only in the summer can you ever go somewhere to see something because it's cold the rest of the time. <laughs> and, we're, and there's collective important things. Whereas in LA, everything's spread out and everything's hidden. But yet the whole world is like gossiping about what's going on in LA. The secret tunnels from the bottom of the Playboy Mansion to Jack Nicholson's house and James Kahn's house. Like those are real things. There are secret tunnels. You know what it looks like? A hill. Vienna is, from what I understand, because I have never been, it's like kind of ultra-kitchy. You know, it's very prettified. Yeah, it looks like a wedding cake. The freakness underneath caused World War II. If you just stick your head out the window in LA and look around walking on the streets, you know you're being lied to. So there's an anxiousness about appearances and about beauty and about dazzling presentation. Not quite at Las Vegas level, where you know that everyone's being destroyed, but you know that it's weird. Whereas in New York, Mm -hmm. you can maybe convince yourself that you go to Union Square Park and you're seeing life. Mm -hmm. It's just close enough, even though there's tons of hidden shit in New York, of course, you're convinced that like this big fat Italian guy who's talking like this, he's Tony Soprano. You're seeing that guy and you're like, I'm seeing a lot of the hidden world right now, because I'm seeing this guy. That sense of secrets being essential to any kind of real life is very LA. And maybe that's why mm. that keeps going on as a thing.
2: Because you're attacking New York, of course. And of course, I have to say <laughs> that there is a ton of hidden New York. Nobody even knows one thing about the Bronx, and the Bronx is fantastic for stories and things happening. And I don't want to hang out with Marilyn Manson. <laughs>
3: <laughs> no. I don't. I mean, you're right. No, that's why they're they're <laughs> horrific stories. Okay, okay, they're good. They're stories that go against the... They, okay, the secrets of New York are often secrets which go exactly along with the mythology of New York. The public mythology of New York That's is like- That's fine though! Right, right? Like you got these wise guys and you got Chinatown and they're sneaky and they're, they're maybe doing like secret opium poker dens. And then you go into the secrets in New York and you're like, oh, those things are true. Yes, there are actually gangsters <laughs> running the don't. clubs. Whereas in LA, the secret is always like Arsenio Hall is actually like a robot. They're weird, they're just completely off The presentation, there's not just a secret layer to what you're seeing in LA, it is of a completely different tenor than what you're seeing. The appearance it's you know, the classic movie thing of like the movie presents like a heroic story of good things happening and bad people being, and then the studio is just like a bunch of assholes fighting with each other and drugs and the, the two mythologies fight with each other. Whereas like, I think there's a different drama in people's heads about New York, you know?
1: There's a lot, actually, about Parisian modernism that I love, but I feel like there's not the sense that it needs to be defended. It, it won. it's dominant in a way that Viennese modernism is sort of thought of as, like, art for college kids, but you'll grow out of it, you know? Similarly, even though I love New York and I've chosen to live here for 16 years because I love it, I will likely live here for the rest of my life. Nonetheless, even still, I get a little... As someone maybe who came from somewhere else that has its own kind of uh, mythology, you know, there's something about the self-mythologizing of New York that I feel like is a little silly and that I also, I would never have wanted to be one of those artists who came to New York in order to be a New York artist. Like I'm gonna work for Bryce Martin, hand him bounty paper towels in his Long Island studio uh, so that I can become part of this great lineage. Maybe I don't need to get into this in Zach's interview, but I, (laughs) I guess I'm saying that I sympathize in sort of both directions. I love New York, of course I love New York, but there is something like can be uh, annoying about its self-aggrandizement.
3: It was very easy for me to not, the degree that stuff is interesting, like, oh, you'll be in New York, you'll be an intellectual and you'll be connected to things and you'll see like life in all its different, whatever. It was really easy for me to just pick that up, the parts of that that seemed like useful or interesting very quickly and move on because like my family is Jewish and from New York. Like I get that one for free. You leave Texas, you don't have to like experience Texas and the Texas landscape and the Texasness because you're from Texas, you know? Mm -hmm. So even though I wasn't from New York, like the first few weeks in art school, I was like, oh, I'm an art student in New York arguing with somebody who looked, you know, and then I'm gonna go talk to somebody who's like booked the Ramones 20 years ago for their first gig. I was an intern at Art Forum, and I just feel like it was easy to collect that little piece of thing and be like, okay, I, I know what that's about. And I liked it and I appreciated New York, but I never felt like I was missing too much by not being there. Mm-hmm. I go back there and I feel like it's still a place I understand.
1: Well, do you feel like, you know, the, the closing of Brownies, the fact that the Continental doesn't have shows, that St. Mark's really, for the most part, just as like a place to buy bongs and falafels. I mean, do you feel like that trajectory has anything to do with that feeling? And do you feel like there's more rock and roll, more more punk culture, more things that are of interest to
3: you actually in the street life of Los Angeles? Like not just beneath the surface? I used to think that there was like New York decades and LA decades. The 60s Mm. were kind of a West Coast decade. And then the 70s were kind of an East Coast decade. And then the 80s were kind of, you know, Reagan, Sunshine, West Coast. And the 90s were kind of New York, dark, grungy. And then there was a bunch of stuff that, you know, was in the New York that I loved that was gone. So that definitely was a reason to leave. The artist's story in, in New York is still there. It's just somewhere else. They just move around. You know, mm-hmm. like there's somebody in Brooklyn yeah. doing something crazy. You know, it, it's just, that's not where I am. Mm-hmm. The sense, that I get in New York about history and the past and and what's going on is that it's all there in a big heap. And if you just keep digging, you'll get more and more of it. You know, like there it is. Mm -hmm. Like you just keep looking and looking and looking. Whereas the sense I get in LA is that you'll never find it all. It's all Hollywood Babylon. It's all just like mystery. It's all just like Pinchonian weird (laughs) shenanigans with aerospace and like Mexican immigrant stuff that, that is like miles deep and hidden in its own history and like Hollywood stuff, which is covered up. So yeah, it's like New York is kind of in its own way. It, it kind of wants people to visit and learn and it will eventually mm-hmm. welcome you. And the more you want to learn, the more it will give you. It's a generous, f- there's a family there, <laughs> you, know, it's a f- you know? Whereas LA is like a fort. You've mm-hmm. got to break in.
2: Do you think you're gonna spend the rest of your life in LA?
3: No, I'll probably spend some time Overseas or something, doing something weird, go to New Orleans or something. I, like, I like to see strange things, live in different places. And also, because I do work at a desk all the time, mm-hmm. being in a place that's very active helps because then if I'm, I, I'll run into new people and meet new people. And that's really important for what I do. I like the LA as a puzzle, I like it as a challenge.
2: I feel you on that. Makes me want to move somewhere. <laughs> I have a daughter, though. I like hanging out with her. She's staying here. True. I, I also think that as an episode extra, is just going to be pizza Arch.
3: <laughs> we didn't talk about how brick oven pizza was bad yet. <laughs> what? Uh, talking uh, about?
2: Uh, <laughs> what? You're to like a... That's crazy talk. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of We Eat Art.
0: Check out our guest, Zach Smith, whose latest work at Frederickson Freiser Gallery in New York is just about to close, but there'll be a lot of stuff coming up that we will announce on this podcast for sure. You can always check out his work online.
3: Just Google him. And remember that his name doesn't have a C in it. You can support this podcast by liking us on Facebook and Twitter at We Eat Art. You can also rate us on iTunes. Please subscribe or tell a friend. And don't forget, we have a Patreon. Please can Consider Becoming a patron and you will be one of our supporters with your donations You'll get exclusive episodes
0: t-shirts stickers all sorts of great things go to patreon.com
3: backslash we eat art we eat art it is produced by Papen and mnemonic recordings the engineer sound producer and editor is justin asher
2: yeah, justin's gonna be s- Editing this forever. (laughs) (laughs) This blows away the James Jean measly three hours. (laughs) We're going to have to do a part two. You can do
3: whatever you like.